I've had the honor of addressing this group a number of times on the subject of preaching, and, and basically everything that I've ever said to Twin Lakes Fellowship has ended up in one of two books. Uh, Worshiping with Calvin, which is the theology and history and so forth of worship from a Reformed point of view, and then Serving with Calvin, which is at first a really short book entitled The Pastor's Public Ministry, and uh, then that was expanded in, into what is today Serving with Calvin. But both those titles, by the way, were, were attempts to capitalize on the young, restless, and reformed, people talking about being Calvinists, so I thought, well, we might, might try to tap into that interest. Um, but between the two of them, I've written about 100 pages on preaching, and most of that has been addressed to this group at one time or another. But I come to realize as well that this is the 17th year that the Twin Lakes Fellowship has has gathered. We met first in, well, we started planning at the end of the 1990s. And then the first meeting that we had was here in other buildings um, elsewhere, smaller buildings, back in 2001 was the first year. So that, that, that would make this the 17th uh, gathering of the Twin Lakes Fellowship. And so there were bound to be lots of new people here who weren't here on previous occasions. And I'm going to come at this a little bit different. I want to do the nuts and bolts uh, of preaching. As we're preaching 101 was the, the title uh, that I was given. And so I'm going to look at it from a practical, preparational type of perspective for today and then hopefully leave time for uh, questions and answers um, if you should... Um, desire to do that. All right, I want to say first of all that fruitful and faithful preaching is an extension of life, extension of the life of the preacher. So I'm going to build some on John uh, and what John had to say yesterday. Uh, let, me, let me put the question to you this way. Can you take a counseling class or two or a whole curriculum of counseling and get a counseling degree and on the basis of that be sure that you will be a good counselor. Now, my answer to that question is no. Because to counsel properly requires wisdom if you're going to impart wise counseling and wise counsel to others. And becoming wise is not something that can be derived from a course of study. So being wise is something that is, um, is one becomes um, through the experiences of life. You, we grow in wisdom over time, and so there will be very wise counselors who've never had a counseling class, but who are very wise, and so they're able to give sound, godly advice. And then there are going to be people who have had the classes, and the classes can help. You, you, know, you get certain principles that I think are helpful um, uh, and examples from which you can learn. So there, there, there's, a, there's a lot to be gleaned from those courses, and I'm not denigrating those. I'm just saying that there are going to be people who will have had all of the courses and yet will not have become good counselors uh, because they don't have the wisdom. They're not wise. Um, they're, they're not able to impart wisdom because they themselves don't have much to impart, frankly. Uh, so I think the same is true with preaching. Uh, preaching is an extension of life. Good preaching is not something that can be taught in a classroom, though, again, you can, you can learn a certain uh, techniques. Um, you can gather certain 
principles, but faithful and fruitful preaching is an extension of the life of the preacher. So that leads me to say five things about the life of the preacher. The life of the preacher should be characterized, first of all, by disciplined study. Disciplined study, in particular, of the texts that are going to be preached. When I first arrived at Trinity College in Bristol, England, um, within a matter of a few weeks, I was walking toward the library, and one of my fellow students, a, real, a very nerdy Englishman, was walking out with a stack of commentaries this high. And all I'd ever known of preaching or teaching up to that point was basically read the Bible for yourself and, and, and draw out a lesson. And maybe you'd have one commentary. And he comes out with this stack, literally this high, carrying it like this. And I said, what are you doing? I said, he said, I'm preparing to preach. And I just looked at him like he was crazy. And he said, I've got to get the text right. Well, clearly that made an impression on me because 40 years later, I'm talking to you about that. He was so committed to making sure that he understood the text that he was going to preach that he was taking out a shelf full of books to look at the various commentaries to make sure he got the passage right. That is to say that I think a faithful and fruitful preacher is going to be one who is going to be concerned about the text and getting it right. And so we'll live a life of disciplined study of the passages of Scripture that upon which he, he will be preaching because he wants to preach the message that God gave in giving that passage. He, he wants um, the, the message that the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophet or the apostle to be the one that the congregation receives. Secondly, uh, the life of the preacher should be characterized by a disciplined devotional life. This is difficult for me to talk about because to relate personal experience, I think personal experience both in preparation and de devotional life and all that, that can be very idiosyncratic and one doesn't want to present oneself as a, a norm or even an example. I don't think of myself as particularly godly. Uh, but I do want to say, just put it out there for you to, to think about. Uh, I am disappointed if I have less than an hour for my morning devotions. I really feel cheated. Um, Tuesday morning we have a prayer meeting at the church and so it's at 6.30 a.m. and so I don't get that hour in so I go a little bit, quite a bit longer than next morning but between reading the Bible and then reading uh, typically one of the Puritans for several pages more on that in a moment uh, and then to have time to pray and to pray for the people that I'm eager to pray for I feel rushed if I don't at least have an hour and I'm quite fanatical about that that I really have to have that. I want that. And it's not because I think that, that Jesus is a, a stormtrooper who's going to you know, beat me if I don't. I, I cherish that time. It's, if, if, um, um, I've said this to my congregation and they just laugh at me. But I, I really, I would, if, is it Super Bowl or um, having an hour and a half out on my porch, beginning with my cup of tea and but with my Bible and one of the Puritans to read and unhurried, unrushed, quiet, nobody bothering me time. I'll take, I'll take the time on the porch. I, say, I think the same thing about Sunday worship as well. Sunday, our, our Sunday morning service in Savannah versus being at you know, the Olympics 
It's, to me, it's no, it's no competition at all. I don't even have to think about it. I don't have to blink. Uh, far rather be gathered with the saints on Sunday morning, experiencing together uh, the presence of God in the midst of his people or the presence of God, um, fellowship with Christ in the morning and through his word and through great devotional literature. Uh, so I, how do you preach without that, and that being the reality out of which one is speaking? How do you commend the knowledge of God to others if it isn't something that is cherished yourself? So a disciplined devotional life. Thirdly, disciplined family worship. Um, all through the years, we were bringing up our children. We had 10 to 15 minutes a day. Again, I was quite fanatical about this. Um, not, not, I'm not preaching a sermon to them. It's really simple. We had a psalm of the month. And we'd review a couple of others. Uh, we would read the Bible, and I would pray with them, but every day. So if you go 10 to 15 minutes a day, and you do that six days a week, Sunday we're in worship twice, so we didn't have the family devotions. But every other day of the week, whatever we were doing, we, we would do that. And so we read through the Bible. My children grew up hearing me pleading for their souls, which I trust will either lead to their conversion or haunt them into the grave. Um, they've heard the whole Bible read. They've learned all, uh, well, they've left, read. They know the first stanzas, at least, of 180 of the psalms and classic hymns of the church. Because we, why? Because we did family devotions every day. Uh, they know the Ten Commandments. They know the Apostles' Creed. They know the Lord's Prayer. They know the doxology, the glory of pottery. They learn those first in family devotions. Discipline uh, family devotions so that you are leading your family. How do you lead your family? If I can paraphrase First Timothy 3, how do you lead your family? How do you lead the church in worship if you're not leading your family in worship? Um, fourth, discipline public worship. Uh, Sunday morning, Sunday night services are as vital for me as it is for any member of the congregation, whether I'm preaching or not. Um, I need to be in church Sunday morning and Sunday night. I need my soul to be fed. I need to enjoy the fellowship of the saints. I need to experience the presence of our triune God in worship. Uh, and then fifthly, um, it should, your life should be characterized by a breadth of reading. I read Christian Century. That's the liberals. I want to know what the other guys are, say are saying. So I get uh, that on a weekly or bi-weekly basis. Christianity Today, the Wall Street Journal are part of my regular reading, uh, as well as the denominational uh, publications. Um, I listen to NPR every day. Again, I want to know what the bad guys are saying. Um, I read very, very selectively online. I don't go online myself very much. I have my secretary um, uh, print out anything that's worthwhile that somebody else typically has located for me. And uh, so I'll read some of those things. But I don't like to waste time online. I think time is too valuable. I don't want to get into that whole look checking your phone. Uh, I just last week for the first time got a smartphone. It was given to me. It was handed down. I've already let people know I'm not answering your text. I'll read them, but I'm, not, I'm just not going to take the time to do all that. I'm, 
Time's too valuable. Um, at this point, now maybe I'll change, but at this point, time is too um, valuable to be wasting looking at that thing all day long instead of paying attention to more important things, including the people in whose presence I am. Um, <laughs> All right, so then I wanted to say also a thing about reading the Puritans. Um, we started a little group in our church called the Dead Theologian Society, and we read a few things for a couple of years. And uh, then I put William Gurnall before them. Massive William Gurnall, the original, 1,179 pages. And they were quite intimidated by it, and I said, just three pages, three to four pages a day, and you read Gurnall. You can do that. You can do, you can do that as part as your, your, you have a daily devotional life, right? Right? You do? Okay. Well, you, you just take 15 minutes to read three to four pages of Gurnall every day, and you've read him in a year. I just want to tell you, reading Gurnall was one of the most valuable things I've ever done. And this whole um, approach to reading Puritans on the basis of three to four pages a day has really in one sense, turned my life upside down. When I got through with Gurnall, December 17th, 2015, I felt a twinge of grief uh, because my daily companion would be with me no more. Um, and Gurnall, page after page after page after page, I was underlining exclamation points I was moved, uh, he was illuminating, he was challenging, he was inspiring, and he keeps it up. It's uh, uh, 11 verses in 1,100 pages, and I never sensed that there was any repetition. Maybe there was, but I never discerned it. Just page after page. So then we tackled, um, or I tackled, the group didn't. I may come back to them with this. Sharnock, Existence and Attributes of God. Oh, my word. Again, page after page after page of, you know, I felt like after first Gurnall, then Sharnock, I felt like, where did these men come from? What planet did, did they arrive from? There is such a depth and such quality and such insight that I just have never encountered anywhere else. And then you could go to Swinnock in volume five, The Incomparableness of God. It's a mini Sharnock. It's 185 instead of 1,200 pages. But the same thing, just depth and profound and insightful and inspiring and illuminating and convicting and humbling. And so that has been an important part of the disciplined reading that I have taken on in more recent years. Um, preaching is an, is an extension of life. Faithful and fruitful preaching is characterized by the life of a preacher that is disciplined in, its, in the study, in the devotional life of family worship, public worship, uh, reading, and study. Alec Motier, in his wonderful little book on preaching, says, It is not the most able who are blessed in their ministry, but the most holy. Okay, process. My process starts Monday morning early. I get up early. 
I know a lot of people take Monday off. That never worked for me. If I took Monday off, I was scrambling the rest of the week. The week was on top of me. So I stay home and, re- and work on my sermon all day. Now, regrettably, still today, after 30 years, people think I'm taking Monday off. I'm not taking Monday off. I start early. I have uh, an extended time of devotions and then go, in, go after the sermon. And I, I, I spend the entire day doing the Sunday morning sermon, including writing it out. So here's the process I go through. Um, first of all, the original text. Um, if I'm at my best, I'm writing a translation and I have Zerwick's analysis uh, beside me. Because I'm not very good with languages, to be frank. I uh, never have been. I'm a victim of California's public education. We quit diagramming sentences in the seventh grade because you learned all that by osmosis according to the latest educational theories. So when it came to even the English language, it's been an uphill battle the whole way for me. I've had to learn these things on my own. I mean, never, never forget, when I got to England, we were studying Greek out of the Wenham grammar. And at the beginning of his grammar, he has an explanation of English grammar. And it was like the lights went on. English, I finally understood what English grammar was all about and so had a basis for looking at, at, uh, at Greek and Hebrew. So anyway, I do spend time looking at the original text. When I'm at my best, I'm writing out a translation and I'm looking at Zerwick and um, uh, d- uh, d- d- dictionaries for the, the meaning of the terminology. Then I read commentaries of two kinds. I find commentary reading to be the most tedious of all my labor. I don't enjoy reading commentaries. Just uh, Like Dr. Kelly, this is perfect honesty time. I just don't like them. I find them to be tedious, but necessary to read. So I read two types of commentaries. One, the modern exegetical commentaries. Two, the historical reformed commentaries. So among the modern, I will always read, if I can get my hands on, or if they've written on, D.A. Carson, Leon Morris, Howard Marshall, R.T. France, F.F. Bruce, Cranfield. Um, on Romans and Mark is fabulous. Um, John Stott, Alec Motier, I'll usually read a liberal or two. And I like the late 19th century um, commentators like Plummer and Edie. Um, and then um, of the historic reformed, always read Calvin and Matthew Henry and in the Gospels, J.C. Ryle. And just recently um, have been using John Trapp uh, English Puritan and um, Matthew Poole, another of the Puritans, who's three volumes on every verse in the Bible. And they have been very helpful, very useful, illuminating. Um, they, um, they have, um, I've really appreciated Trap and Poole, and they, they, I think that uh, they're, they're help. They're, I think I'm preaching better because I'm reading them than otherwise I would be, put it that way. Um, I then take notes. As I'm reading, this is old school, I take them on four by six note cards. John Stott recommended that 35 years ago and I took him up on it. Um, So I take notes on everything I'm reading as I'm reading it. Um, 
I find that their ideas, though reading them is tedious, I find that I'm constantly being prompted by what they're writing into thinking about the passage. And so I'm going, we're going to write down everything they say that is meaningful to me and then everything I think of on the basis of what they've said. So in effect, on these cards, I'm writing the sermon already. I'm writing their comments, and then I'm, I'm thinking. And so it's stimulating thought. That's, that's a good part of the tedium of reading the commentaries. Um, I then, when I finish all the commentaries, I then look back at the passage and write an outline of the way that I think it can be preached. Um, my understanding of the text. And um, let me say this at this point. I, I, I believe that every pericope, every paragraph, every passage has a central point. That is the point of a paragraph, right? Uh, what is a paragraph? A paragraph is a unit of thought. So every Bible paragraph is a unit of thought. And so there's a central controlling idea in every paragraph that we read. And then there are a series of subordinate clauses that are, that are supporting the main thought of the paragraph. And I, my approach to preaching is I need to find that central thought. What is the point of the passage? Why is it there as opposed to not being there? Once I understand what the point of the passage, the paragraph is, and of course in relation to the paragraphs around it and the theme of the whole book and the theme of the whole Bible, and once I've discovered what that is, then how are the subordinate clauses supporting the main idea? Then you have your outline. So that, that this uh, sentence number one is supporting the idea in this way. And sentences number three to five are supporting it in this way. And then, so that there's the outline of the passage. Now I'm letting the passage just determine the outline and determine the sermon. The flow of the sermon is going to be determined by the flow of the passage. So I have this central idea. That's what's going to be hammered home. That's going to be the focus of the sermon. And each point then on the three or four point outline is in support of that main thought. It's either illustrating it or, or extending it. Um, or in some way it is providing support for that main point. So I'm going to preach that point. Uh, I'm going to identify that focus, preach that point, and then support and, 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 and illustrate and apply that point as I'm going. At least, um, at least to some length, uh, to some degree, as we're going, I'm going to be, I'm going to be d d saying what it says, um, trying to illustrate what it says and then apply what it says before I move on to the next point. So that, um, you've probably heard me say this before, so that um, every five minutes or so, I'm, I'm at least every five minutes or so, I'm answering the question, so what? Okay, then after I have the outline, I write the sermon out longhand. I told you I'm old school. Often that is a matter of just rearranging the cards. And, and I'm writing out, and I might even staple the cards to, to eight and a half sheets of paper. I then take it in when I've written it all out by longhand. Why do I do it by longhand? Because I think better with a pen in my hand. Uh, there's people that say there's something to that. I don't know. Dr. Packer still writes out everything he does on a typewriter with a manual return carriage. Um, and always has. But uh, 
To me, I write better. I think better. The writing out of the sermon is a huge help to me in, in finding the way to express what, what I'm trying to get said. And then as I'm writing it out, then um, if, 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 I can go, if I can make the distinction between illumination and revelation... Presbyterians don't believe God continues to reveal new information. Those days have ceased, uh, the confession says. But there's the illumination of the Holy Spirit. While I hate the tedium of reading the commentaries, the writing out I often find is a time of illumination where I get flooded with stuff I didn't know was, was, was stuff that hadn't occur- occurred to me, put it that way. There's a givenness often, I think, to the sermon and where it's going and what, um, what comes to mind as a way to drive home the point of the sermon uh, to the congregation. As for this longhand, I want to give a brief defense of myself. I was doing MS-DOS while mo- a number of you were still in diapers, all right? So I was way ahead of the computer game back in the beginning. Yes, I typed out sermons and copied them onto real floppies and took the floppy into my secretary back in the day when you didn't have any visual prompts. So all that to say, I'm a, I'm a bit of a Luddite, but I was once on top of this, and then they kept changing the program, and I finally said, I'm not learning this again. So... Now I have secretaries who learn it, and I write it out, and I think better anyway. All right, so that's all done on Monday. It gets typed out on Tuesday. I then leave it alone until Friday morning, and I go back to it then. If things occur to me during the week, then I I jot those things down. I then take the manuscript and reduce it to an outline, revising the manuscript as I go. I used to do this on Saturday night, beginning at 10 o'clock, when my children were young, and I would go from 10 o'clock to about 1 a.m. At about 45, I could no longer generate the mental energy that was necessary to work at those hours, so I had to give that up. So I went to Friday morning, and for me, there is a tremendous amount of mental focus, mental energy being exerted to take it from a manuscript, to put it into an outline, and make sure that I'm, that, 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 that the thing flows, that it makes sense, that it's being expressed well, that the language is precise and concise and exact, and the best possible way of expressing it. So that's a, that's a valuable exercise to me. And this to me is the value of writing out the sermon, is taking the sermon and then reducing it to the outline. It just forces a, a, an economy of language to get said what needs to be said. And that's a good thing. So that things are being said with precision, so that the thoughts are clear, so they are articulate. And so that the other thing is when it's reduced to an outline, it's clearer whether or not the whole thing hangs together. When you actually see it in an outline, sometimes you scratch your head and say, where is this thing going? And what have I left out? Uh, and it just helps visually to see it by, uh, by looking at the outline. I reduce the sermon to these, two and a half of these, color-coded, black for headings, Uh, blue for additional thoughts that are less important than the headings, and then red for illustrations. Uh, So that's about a four-hour process on Friday morning. 
And then Sunday morning, I get up early again. I review the prayers that will be used for that day. That is the scripture text that will be used in the prayers for that day because I want to keep the prayers fresh. I don't want to fall into habitual language, which I think is a problem for most of us. Uh, we don't have a liturgy perhaps, but uh, and we, we, we may as well because we're using the same prayer, the same prayer language, the same prayer themes over and over again every week. So to stay fresh, uh, I, I gather texts that I want to incorporate into, into the prayers that are going to be used that Sunday. I revise, review those prayers and then preach the sermon out loud, continuing as I'm going to revise the manuscript uh, and then make additions to the outline as I'm going. It's often very, very fruitful in that final, finalizing of the sermon. Often very fruitful time. I'll be Xing out great swaths of stuff uh, because I realize, no, this is going too long. Or, I've, no, I've gotten off the point here. I'm going down this rabbit trail. I've lost focus. And so that final run through is often a very, very profitable time. And then into the pulpit and preach. Okay, now I have a huge, huge caveat. Sunday night, whole different affair. Uh, when I first started at Independent, I was the only minister there, and I was preaching three times a week. And I called Jim Baird and said, Dr. Baird, who I had interned under and served under, I said, how do you get it all done? And he said, I'm not going to say that he used this term, but I'm going to use it. Um, but I don't mean it in a moral sense. Um, he said, you're going to have to cheat. Uh, well, what do you mean? You're going to have to find a way to just put less time into Sunday night. Well, doesn't that devalue Sunday night? Well, maybe, maybe not. But you're going to have to have a different approach. And I have found that to be the case. I cannot preach two full sermons and be the pastor of the church. I can't get it all done. So Sunday night... I have taken a different approach, and that is to find one great commentary and use that to prepare the Sunday night sermon. By great commentary, I mean anything that John Stott has ever written, anything that Alec Motier has ever written, a Motier on Amos, Motier on Exodus, Motier on Philippians and James and Isaiah, um, anything that Ralph Davis has written. Um, all of his, his uh, commentaries on the historical narrative. So I've preached from Genesis to Esther on Sunday nights. Um, but I had to cut down the process in order to do those. So I, I have one great commentary, and then I have sitting on the side a couple of others that are good exegetical commentaries so that when I get stuck on a verse um, that uh, I, have, uh, I have another expert to go to. Now, Here's the thing about this, why I don't feel too guilty about this, again, being perfectly honest, is that there, there are a large number of people who prefer the Sunday night preaching to the Sunday morning preaching. I'm a little more hang loose. It's not as tightly thought through. Um, I deviate from the notes. I'm a lot freer Sunday night. And it's a distressing to me in one sense because I put all this energy and all this effort into the Sunday morning sermon and half that amount of effort and energy into Sunday night. And then there's all these people, especially the spiritually mature ones, who like the Sunday night one better than the Sunday morning. So, um, so I apologize, but I don't apologize really for the fact that if I'm to pastor this people, I can't duplicate the hours 
the energy, the time that goes into the Sunday uh, morning sermon. I have to cut the process about in half. And that's the way it's worked for me. I feel like when you read John Stott, you know, he's, he's done all the homework for you. He's given you the goods. Does it make sense? If you, got, if you don't think he's right on something, you, then you grab something else. Um, same with Ralph Davis. He's done all the homework. Read them. I'm not, I'm not plagiarizing by any means because I can't preach how they preach. And Stotts aren't preaching anywhere. Neither are my tears. But they, they, again, they, they give you the understanding of the passage, the text, and maybe even an outline to help you um, prepare for that second sermon. All right, then actually preaching. When did we count this as starting? Yeah. You're kidding. Uh, well, let's hurry along. Um, as to actually preaching, number one, under the preaching, as for the introduction, use variety. Don't be predictable. Often, for me, the best introduction is to say, Jesus is now on the road to Jerusalem. He has just left Boom, right into the text. I find that's often the best way to go. Now, sometimes I'll, I'll start with an, an illustration from out of life. Uh, I would just say, don't, just vary the introduction. Don't be predictable. Don't, don't, don't set things up in such a way that people know exactly what you're going to do every time. Sometimes I'll start with a question, is there anything more important or is there anything more frustrating than or anything more confusing, or anything more uh, troubling, or use an illustration. Secondly, explain the text. Jump into the text. Use multiple terms, a rich vocabulary to explain what the text means. And make sure that people know that that's what you're doing. You are preaching from this text. Make sure they know that that's what you're doing. Look at verse 1. Point them to the text. Tell them. Look at verse 2. You see what the Apostle Paul says. Uh, he, he reasoned. He explained. He proved. Show them the vocabulary and then elaborate on the meaning. We were talking the other day about Psalm 2. Uh, where God laughs at the rulers of the earth who are rebelling against him. And the illustration that I thought of was when my children were toddlers. And when they knew I was upset with them, they would run away like they could get away. And you just, would you just sit there and just laugh. What do you, where do you think you're going? What do you think you're doing? Do you really think that you can get away from me? And here are the rulers. They're conspiring together against the Lord. And he just laughs at them. What do you think you're doing? I just have to flick my finger and you are, are obliterated. Um, so that's, uh, that's the kind of uh, illustrative explanation uh, that helps to bring out the meaning of the text. Third thing I want to say as to preaching itself. And again, there's 80 pages of this in Serving with Calvin. But seek to persuade. Calvin, Edwards, Lloyd-Jones have in common that there is a paucity of illustration and yet there is a relentlessness um, of logic. There is a compelling logic that moves the sermon along. 
We should be seeking to persuade people of the meaning of the passage, to convince them of what it means and the implications as to what we are to believe and what we are to do on the basis of the meaning of the passage. I think that we should preach as though we were lawyers. We are making a case. Here is what it means. Here then is what we must believe or do because of what this means. I need to persuade you of that. Convince you that that's uh, what, what God would have us know, learn, do because of the passage that we are studying together. The Apostle Paul in Acts 2, uh, 17 rather, 2, we are told that he reasoned explaining and proving into verse 3 at Thessalonica. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving. Alec Motier defines reason as to argue a case in the sense of presenting and supporting a point of view with the aim of winning the other person over. It means, he says, marshalling and presenting evidence as compellingly as possible. Then there's a second word, explaining, and a third word, proving. Motir says of that third word, paratithemi, giving evidence in the New American Standard. He says it means to set it out as a coherent, persuasive case, a well-preserved, a well-served meal for the mind. Our full powers of persuasion are to be employed. Attention should be paid to collective, connective words such as and and therefore and so that, whereby what Motir calls the logic of the Holy Spirit can be seen. Meaning by that, Motir says, how in his mind one thing follows another, how one causes or gives rise to another. Similarly, Spurgeon insists, it is not enough to be so plain that you can be understood. You must speak so as that you cannot be misunderstood. The pattern of preaching found in the New Testament leads Matir to ask of preachers the following helpful questions. Have the hearers understood? Has the Bible been properly and fully made plain? Has the material been set out in an orderly fashion? Persuade the congregation. Fourthly, urge. Is eternity at stake or not? Are these issues of heaven and hell, life and death, are we dealing with eternal souls and their destiny? J.C. Ryle said of Whitfield, there was a holy violence about him. Kuiper endorses the Latin proverb, in the end it is your heart that makes you eloquent. John Carricker on Martin Lloyd-Jones says there was almost an explosive quality about him. And he says of Edwards that he interrogates his hearers and almost hounds them. Lloyd-Jones himself spoke of the element of attack in preaching. John Murray says, preaching without passion is not preaching at all. Motir, a passionless preaching is a contradiction in terms. In other words, we are not giving lectures. There should be a persuasiveness and an urgency about our preaching. 
We are seeking to convince and convert. And granted, it's the Holy Spirit who converts, but the Holy Spirit uses means. And one means is that the guy up there really believes what he's talking about and that it is vital that I should understand and believe what he's talking about. Fifth, exhort. Not only do we apply, but we also exhort our congregation to receive the teaching and its application. Packer says of Richard Baxter, he preached with hands and feet. He was all over his hearers. 2 Timothy 4.2, we are to exhort parakaleo. Colossians 1.28, and admonish. There comes a point at which we have provided the indicatives and now the imperatives need to be driven home. Listen to some of this from the apostles. Flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. 1 Timothy 2.22. Flee from these things, you man of God, he tells Timothy regarding the love of money. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. 1 Timothy 6.11. Fight the good fight of faith, he continues, and take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. I charge you, he says, in the presence of God, that you keep the commandments without stain or reproach. Timothy is to instruct those who are rich. In effect, to not do this, but do that. Instruct then, he says, them not to be conceited, and so on. Uh, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. We request Request and exhort, the apostle tells the Thessalonians, regarding sanctification and especially sexual purity. Stop depriving one another, the apostle Paul uh, tells Mary Corinthian couples. Abstain from every form of evil, he tells the Thessalonians. And so on and so on. The old preachers were great exhorters, Lloyd-Jones says. And then sixthly... um, Whenever I've been asked to to speak on the subject of preaching, I have made this point. As far as I know, no one has listened to me. Uh, But it is the point of brevity. I remain convinced, more convinced than ever, that about 98% of us need to preach for about a half an hour. Here's the thing. If if you're aiming at a half an hour, you're probably going to preach 35 But if you're aiming at 45, you're probably going to preach 50 and 55. And frankly, that's too long for most of us. It looks like Calvin's sermons are about 30 minutes, if you read them. I I think unless one is a very, very good preacher, that one should be aiming at 30 minutes and maybe go as long as 35 minutes. But most of us shouldn't preach beyond that. And here's what I fear. I fear that if we are chronically preaching 45, 50, 55 minutes, we will forever be pastoring remnant churches. Uh, anybody who's new or young in the faith is going to come, and they're, they're, they're not going to last. They're unlikely to come back. They're going to find uh, the sermons are just too long. It's just too much for them to take in. 
Um, so I, I, I want to continue to recommend that that uh, to be careful about the length of the sermons. And you aim at 30. Prepare for 30. You probably go over. We all do. See, uh, to me, it's ironic. We all prepare for 30. We all go over. None of us are disciplined enough to keep it to 30. But at least if you're going over, it's reasonable length. As, as, as opposed to insufferably long for most people. Um, focus. If you, prepare, if, you, if you aim at 30 minutes... You will focus. You can't get everything said. Here's what I'm, I'm preaching back through John, and I'll close with this. I'm preaching back through John. I preached through it in the early 90s. I'm getting my old manuscripts. It's painful to read the manuscripts. I'm all over the place. There's not focus. I'm running down this rabbit trail. I'm trying to do the whole of systematic theology in every sermon. It, it, there wasn't the focus. It, it, I, um, the discipline of 30 minutes will help focus the sermon on the point. Every sermon does not have to preach everything that we know. So you preach the text, apply the text, um, use an economy of language. If you want to see what I mean by that, uh, on the book table, there's uh, sermons on the parables, on 1 John and on Galatians, at least how I do it. I never quote... Um, commentators from the pulpit, that's one difference between what's in print and what isn't. Uh, very, uh, to put it this way, very, very rarely do I use quotes in sermons. Because I don't think they're helpful. I don't think people follow them for the most part. But my recommendation is keep it brief. 30 minutes. Not a sermon ad of 20 minutes, but a, you know, a substantial thir- sermon of 30 minutes long that you'll go over to 35, but not to 55. All right, Questions? Yes. How much of the 30 minutes should be video clips? Video clips, zero. <laughs> zero. Yeah, you make room for zero. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, we, we take the manuscripts, and I think that there's some use in printing those up. So we do. We make little booklets out of them. And then the congregation, anybody that wants to review and, and then see the support from all the brilliant commentators, of which I am not one, who, who uh, support what I'm saying, they can see some of the evidence of that in those, in those uh, booklets. So we print those up every week. And that's very, very little. Once the sermon's been delivered, it's very little revision uh, after that for me. And I have somebody who really knows grammar well, reads it, and does all the proofing. Yes? Um, the Baron of Truth magazine published an article by Stuart Oliad in 2003, I think it was, on preaching. And if I remember correctly, the title of this article, why do, why, why do not preachers, why are not connecting with the people? And then he goes on and describes what to get across to us 
in making connection, giving, giving to the people to come into your sermon, connecting with them. Um, I don't know if I'm making any sense with that, but can you comment on that? Well, I think all that is what you're doing when you're explaining the meaning of the text. You're trying to connect it to them. So in explaining it, um, I'm not explaining it to a first century uh, congregation. I'm explaining it to a 21st century congregation. So constantly I'm, I'm having to make connections to life today in the 21st century and what it meant then, what it means now. I mean, that's basically what we do in interpreting. What it means then, what it means now. What it means then, what it means now. How this applies to us today. What it means for us today. So I think that's what you're constantly doing is making that connection even when you're not doing quote-unquote application. Because even the explanation has to enter into the world of the audience, of the congregation, or it's not going to make any sense to them. They won't understand what we're talking about. So I think you're constantly trying to get into their world with how you explain the text, how you then apply the text and exhort from it. Okay? Well, see, that's what I'm saying. I have these little cards, you know, so as I'm reading the commentaries, I'm thinking of stuff. So all through the process, I'm thinking of stuff. And then during the week, maybe I'll read something, and I'll think, oh, that, that applies to, you know, something that's a theme in the sermon or something that helps illustrate the sermon. But a lot of it is just part of the process of things. Like I say, I think there's a givenness. For me, I don't know any other way to explain it. There is, there is an element of givenness. Not that I want to blame the Holy Spirit for my sermons, but uh, things come to me in the process of prayerfully preparing that, that are unanticipated, that just seem to come out of nowhere, that help to explain and illustrate and apply the passage. And, and demonstrate the relevance of it for our people today. Yes? Give your opinion on use of contemporary social references as illustrations of the sermon. I don't like to use contemporary social references if you mean by that the latest television show or the latest movie or the latest song. Um, um, the entertainment culture to me is so compromised that I, um, my. I don't have a, a, um, um, a clear conscience about saying that I have uh, uh, watched something because it sounds too much like an endorsement that they should watch it or that the, that was a good thing that I watched it. So the typical TV program now, it, the, the, look, it's not, it's not Lucy and Ricky anymore sleeping in separate beds, right? I mean, everything goes on network TV, on cable in the, in, the, in the movie houses, and to use those, is, it's, it, to me, it is saying I'm giving permission to everyone to go out and watch something that will prove to be uh, destructive of Christian discipleship, under, an undermining influence in terms of, of holy living, because, because so much of that is just normalizing immorality. Is, is there a TV show in which the very attractive stars of the show are not sleeping with each other? I mean, it's just taken for granted, of course. These beautiful people on Chicago Med or whatever, of course they're sleeping with each other. Why would they not? So that's just all being normalized. Homosexuality is being normalized. 
So the sexual revolution is fully operative in the entertainment industry. It's in our songs. It's in our movies. It's in our television. So I'm going to get up there and talk about, hey, I don't even know their names anymore. So-and-so, did you hear his song? So is that an endorsement of that artist? Should, should all our kids run out and, 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 and acquire copies of that music and, and start listening to it? No, I just think that, I just think it's a, I just think it's a thing that we should be very, very slow to do. Yes. Sir, you appear to be what I consider to be a renaissance preacher. Thank you. He said, I'm a renaissance preacher. Do I have a witness out there? You know, I, I don't know if there's an inconsistency. I'll do it in Sunday school. But I think in a worship service, the whole visual image, I don't want big screens with, with uh, words. I just don't want to start down that path of uh, screens with projection of images up on it. Are you just projecting words? Yes. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I haven't quite thought through the implications of projecting words, but I've just, the whole projection, images, pictures, uh, screens, in the context of worship, the second commandment, um, I don't even want to start down that road at all. In a classroom with lectures and stuff, I don't have any problem with it there. But in a worship service, um, I'm very, very reluctant about screens of any kind. Did you give them a sermon out? Um, I, d I don't give them a sermon outline, but I would. I, I would give them a sheet of paper with an outline on it. So you're saying that that's equivalent? Yeah. Somebody else help me out here. <laughs> Wal Walter. I don't think to us now. We know that my job is to stop the minister from having an average break. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I do, I do, t I take Saturday off, all day Saturday. So once I finish the outline on Friday, I think that ministers should, t I, sh I think they should. Our practice is, that's better, that w the ministers take work five and a half days, and that includes Sunday. So I take off from Friday noon, uh, roughly, or one or two, until early Sunday morning. So everybody else has two days off on the weekend, as it were. So I don't think we can do that, but we can take off a half a day and a full day. And so I, I do the end, of, the end of the week, Friday, half day Friday, all day Saturday. And then bang right back to it on Monday. Yes? 
as I'm able. So that um, might, may mean probably Wednesday and Thursday afternoons. Yes. Yeah, I am not, uh, you, believe it or not, I, there, I have a, a very strong pragmatic streak. Um, so if, if there's the 9-11 attack, was I going to ignore that Sunday morning? No, I'm not going to ignore that. I'm going to address that. Uh, the whole world is celebrating Christmas and Easter. I'm not going to ignore that and pretend like that's not happening. I'm going to capitalize on it. So um, I will, I think it is wise to respond to what's happening out there but not respond so often that you undermine the commitment to sequential preaching.